0: Welcome to Unexpressed, where we express the inexpressible. My name is David White, and I'm the publisher at Whitefire. Over the years, I've had the privilege and opportunity to work with some really amazing people, very talented authors mostly, who have a unique view of the world. Our focus has been on the things that are important and challenging, viewed through the lens of storytelling. Our readers and our listeners are a part of that process. So if you're like us, and you're looking for a podcast that will challenge you, and encourage you to challenge yourself, you've come to the right place. Today, we talk to author Kara Licht, her books, Soul Painter, Soul's Prisoner, Soul's Cry, Gathered Waters, which is partially based on her own family's history, are some of the most fascinating and beautifully written I've ever read. I might be a little biased. We talk about the power of fiction, emotional honesty, and her experiences as a pastor. Thanks for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: I was uh, saying before we got started that one of the reasons that I, I looked and thought, oh man, I've got to have Kara on is, uh, I guess, a blog post that you posted quite a few years ago about why you write And um, I remember, you know, when I went to share that, all I wrote was, you know, this can be the mission statement for for the company. Do you remember writing that? And is that the way you still think about it?
1: Um, I do remember writing that. And I think one of the things that brought me to that is um, this, there's a little bit of a, sometimes some confusion over um, what Christian fiction is and why we write Christian fiction. And I think that there's some different camps in that. Um, Some people... Define it one way and some people define it another way. And, and for me, it's just always been that um, I'm a Christian. So what I write has to be Christian fiction. And, um, and then so that just makes that means what I'm writing is a writing is about um, expressing who I am and and, and what the world means to me, and maybe less of um, trying to write for a specific purpose and more of just trying to express what's going on in the world.
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's something that I think that as a company, we've struggled with. And should we be considered a Christian publisher? Or should we be, you know, a publisher that publishes books that Christians may be interested in, but so can everyone else There's obviously the people who they don't want any faith elements in their stories, but there are other people who want to see true, true life portrayed. And I think that you can't have no spiritual elements and you also can't go too far the other way to, Mm -hmm. you know, the sort of cliche. So you said you wanted to write the things that represent you or something like that. So, you know, can you talk a little bit more about what that is and and what stories you're looking to tell?
1: I guess I really wanted to tell stories that talked about real life. Um, and, and so not stories that necessarily tried to teach a lesson or had any particular um, motivation other than the fact that we have this shared experience of life. And and I just wanted my stories to reflect that.
0: Your, your books are interesting because they don't just come out as, you know, regular. You know, you don't write contemporaries, Mm-hmm. You know, at least not with us. I I don't know. <laughs> what, no, what else I have
1: contemporaries.
0: I didn't think so because your other book with another company was um like Depression era or something, right? Yeah, or, yep. yeah. That's so, cool. yep. Yeah. So, you know, that's not exactly our our common life experience. So, how do you how do you bring in you know real life, especially into a story where there's a lot of sort of semi supernatural type of things going on? I mean, <laughs> it's a it's not your normal everyday experience, you know, no one, no one goes to work and, you know, has arguments with, well, maybe that you do have arguments with your family, but that yeah. kind of thing.
1: Well, I guess, you know, I guess um, I can go all the way back. So I, when I got really serious about wanting to write and wanting to write, um, creatively, I decided to start uh, an MFA program, and so when I went back to school, the first decision I had to make was: was I gonna going to go for an MFA in creative nonfiction or in fiction? So when I went back to school, I had to make that decision of if I'm gonna go go back to school for creative nonfiction or for fiction, and what really pulled it to fiction for me was that, um, I felt like I could tell more truth with fiction. Um, and so there's just, um, a lot of things that we can dig down when we don't have to be, um, when we don't have to be, uh, necessarily glued to exactly what happened in a certain timeline. And we can get, I feel like we can get a little bit more, um, emotionally honest with it sometimes.
0: Ooh, okay. I definitely want to, to touch on that emotionally honest side, but what I'm seeing more and more in other places is people wanting to tell true stories or variations on on true stories. That seems to be the the thing, particularly in place like you know the Christian film space. Is they they want to tell lots of true stories. So why wouldn't you want to go down that road?
1: <laughs> well. Um... Okay, so this might end up a little bit like more than what you want, and it might end up a little bit on a soapbox, um, but one of, the, one of my, the things that I really believe is that, um, so, so I'm a pastor as well, um, and part of the process of becoming a pastor, um, really writing and the ministry through writing really opened a door for me to um, realize how much I wanted to minister to others. Um, not in a way that was like, this is what you should believe. And this is what you should do, but here's where I'm going to meet you and let's walk through this together. So part of that is, um, is offering comfort to people. And for me, one of the comforts that I enjoy through film or books or whatever is escape. And I feel sometimes that like escape and being able to offer people comfort through escape is, is a ministry in itself, but, um, we in the Christian community, it seems like we we um, we gravitate towards the real story, the real life story. Um, I've had a lot of people who um, will come up to me during a book signing or something and say, oh, I don't read fiction. I only read nonfiction like it's kind of a Christian badge. And like I'm going to deal with this, you know, in a in, in a way that I'm actually dealing with this instead of instead of um instead of doing something that seems a little, I don't know, the, a little more abstract. And so and they don't want to go to that comfort. They want to go to the work. And I think that we do that a lot of times in our Christian walk, is we want to do things and concentrate on things that make us a better person or that fix a problem in our lives. But I think sometimes we have to understand that um, God also wants to minister us minister to us and give us comfort part of that is just enjoying life and and sharing that with other people and so writing is is kind of a ministry for me i consider it a ministry in that i'm i'm um giving people sometimes even if it's just that escape for a little while and just and just offering them some entertainment i i think that's a ministry in itself but i think that as christians we're kind of wired to want to fix things and and we're a little bit hesitant to Sometimes even to enjoy things enough, because it doesn't feel like work to us, and we're geared toward work.
0: One of the I had a conversation yesterday with uh, a fellow who was um, who's worked in Christian film for a long time, which is what was making me think about this. And he said that uh, you know the true stories are, are our testimonies, and that that's an important part to share. And
1: mm-hmm.
0: I couldn't; it was hard, really hard, not to or to disagree with that that idea but what you said about maybe being able to connect emotionally with with some of this differently like the escape is absolutely important and sometimes you get beat over the head with the true stories like here's this horrible thing that happened and look how their faith (laughs) got them through it like boy i mean on one hand it's inspirational but on the other hand there's no there's no escape Mm
1: -hmm.
0: so but on the other hand you would think that you could connect much more emotionally with true stories in that way. But I think that you were hinting at that, that you can play with that a whole lot more in fiction. So I don't know if you want to get into that.
1: Um, You can play with it a little bit more in fiction Um, with true stories. There's always the responsibility to stay. um, True stories often have one story to tell. Okay. Let me, I'm just trying to think of how I'm going to say this. True stories often have like, one story to tell. And the people who lived that true story are the people who get to define what that story tells. So if I come in and I want to retell a true story, I am bound to tell the story and how it, what it meant to them. But if you think of just like, if you think of a car accident and you think that there's, you know, there's, there's, um, if you can experience that car accident and it can mean one thing to you, you can, it can be a really horrible thing and and you can walk away with, Um, just recognizing um, healing or recognizing grace. But if somebody else writes your story and looks at all of the other things that were happening around that, they can maybe recognize something like forgiveness or they can recognize other things that you may not have experienced. It doesn't diminish what, what you recognized, but it can open it up for more people. So with fiction and talking about being emotionally honest, I don't feel like I have to, if you walked away from that car accident and your story is healing, i don't feel like i have to stay with that story with fiction if the story starts veering towards forgiveness or cra- or grace i can i can follow the story in that direction
0: yeah that's really cool and the other thing that you can do i think sometimes is put stories together that would not have gone together because you mm-hmm. think um i mean i've had this experience where i i hear a true story but i also know a piece of fiction and i think how much better would it be if that fictional part got sort of <laughs> tied into that? You know, I don't think it takes anything away from from the testimony of, of what actually happened, but sometimes I think it adds color and nuance and, and opens it up to be much more universal.
1: Yes. Well, and sometimes what we write, just like if you... So I play piano as well. And so when I play piano, um, if I'm just playing something that I want to... I want to play. Um, sometimes I end up playing things that I didn't, didn't plan on playing. Um, I think anybody who's a visual artist, like a a painter, when they're painting something, they don't plan every brushstroke that goes on that on that canvas. When you're writing, it's the same thing you're writing and you're discovering while you're writing. And so to have that, um, that ability to work in that art and to have that, um, and to have that flexibility is is really important.
0: How much of what you write and when you write are you choosing, you know, topics and themes because you you've got some really good topics and themes everybody should go pick up the book. Do you think it ahead or have you thought this through a lot or how much of this are you discovering and sort of learning through through writing and creating characters and putting them in in these situations?
1: So I've written five books now, and I'm working on the sixth one for, for you guys right now, <laughs> and I'm super excited about it. But I've I've written, I've written, I've had five books published, and the process has been pretty much the same with all five books. And my process is, is I write like mad, just whatever comes to mind until I hit, there's a, I hit a wall at about 100 pages, and it's almost on the button, like 100 pages. I get 100 pages into the thing, and then I panic. Like, how is all this going to come together? <laughs> and so then at 100 pages, that's where I start. I, I go back, I read through, and I see what themes are really developed and what, what I want to push through to the end, map out where those things are going to go to the end. But that first 100 pages is really where I'm working that out.
0: Yeah, so you don't start with a theme. You don't say, I'm going to to write a book about, you know. No. So can you walk us no. through, maybe pick one where you started someplace and maybe something came out you weren't expecting or.
1: Well, soul painter when I first started that one and that was the first one that you guys published um, that one, I had no idea that she was going to be a prophetic painter. Really? No idea. Are you serious? I just sat down and started writing.
0: I mean, a normal writer that would have been like, and this person, you know, writes pictures of the future and then they sit down and write the book.
1: No, no, oh, by the way, wrong. spoiler
0: alert. anybody listening? Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> well, it happened pretty early, but I was writing, I was writing through and I said, um, and and then I wrote, I think there's a line in there, something about, um, and it wasn't who she thought she would be. She painted somebody and she wasn't who she thought she would be. And yeah, I, I thought, that. ooh, that works." And then I just took it through. Um, And so that's that's kind of that's kind of where that started for me um, is where I really just write and discover who the characters are. That first hundred pages is just a blast because it's like I can't wait to get home from work and find out what they're going to do next. And so and so I just I absolutely love that.
0: Okay, so, so then how do you decide where you're going to start? <laughs> yes, yeah,
1: so I usually start with one scene in my head. And if you, if you look back in my books, you'll see that there's just one scene. So Soul Painter starts out with a woman walking through the fog. That's where I started with that. So why is she walking through the fog? What is she doing? What is she feeling? And I really just try to put myself there in the fog. What am I seeing? What's happening? And that's how I start. Um, is is I really just every single one of my books starts with just that that scene and I've played around with with writing where like I start out with a scene where it's like multiple people in a room um, or something like that and starting out in conversation but it never grabs me as much as if I just have that one character and I am in that one character for that starting and then I have to answer those questions
0: that's so cool uh, yeah I totally distracted by by that methodology and and everything. So wow so do you ever find that the like stuff you're working through or dealing with on on a regular day it finds its way in like stuff you've thought through or like again, uh, Camille when I spoke to her last week, she said she spends an awful lot of time in sort of self-reflection and then, that makes its way into her writing, whether that's blogs or or books or that kind of thing. It almost sounds like you work the other way, right? Like you're discovering the way you really think about the world through your writing or, or maybe your regular life and your writing life are, are separate and independent. So
1: um, I think that writing helps me discover things. I I do think that it works the opposite way for me. Um, And, um, and that's, yeah, I think it's simply that that's that really the writing helps me to reflect. It's almost like um, when I write, I almost feel like I'm journaling, but it's somebody else's journal. Oh, um, and so that which is now that I say it, it sounds a little creepy, but <laughs> but that's that's how I feel because I, I'm always in that in that person's head, and so I feel like they're kind of like when I get done with the book, I kind of miss them. <laughs> Oh yeah. So but um but yeah and then and then the trilogy the so it's Soul Painter, Soul's Prisoner, Soul's Cry. Um I I definitely miss those characters. And and so after I finished that trilogy it's like cuz they're like your friends. They're super cool people. Um and, and you, you almost know,
0: want to write your own fan fiction, right? Like, oh, let me yes. just go talk go visit with them a little bit.
1: Yes, yes, right, exactly.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. So these conversations never quite go where I'm expecting. So I was thinking, oh, you you know, knowing that you're a pastor and that you have done some of this, this stuff, I think, oh, you're probably thinking about this stuff all the time and, you know, it's in your regular life. So I thought this would naturally segue into, you know, what's your life like outside of outside of being a writer? But maybe it doesn't. So maybe I'll just ask, what's your life like outside of being a writer?
1: <laughs> well, there is there is kind of a segue. So the one book that I have with the other publisher um, I approached that book during a time where I was having some difficulty um, deciding what Christian community looked like and what Christian community should be. And I was having a real hard time with um, forced positivity Ooh. that I was seeing a lot of people have to deal with. And so I, when, when I started that one, that one is um, it's, it's a dust bowl. I thought, what would it look like? to be a pastor in a small town that was devastated by the Dust Bowl? Because your job wouldn't be the same. You know, this is going to last for a decade. You know, it's it just never ends. So what does what does Christian community look like when it's horrible and it's going to stay horrible for a long time? So that one was a little bit different in, in my approach. Now, I still started the same way with like a scene and then just kind of let things happen. But that was really an expression of what I was going through at that time. And that was when I was trying to really decide what I was going to do um, in my own personal in my own personal life. Um, I had been a worship leader in my dad's church for many, many years, and then he retired. So I knew that that would be coming to an end. And then um, and so I went to seminary, but mostly because I wanted to study theology, not because I wanted to do ministry. and. That whole process of what does what does church look like now for me really, really um, led me to write some things, but then it also directed me on this other path toward a calling to ministry. And so it, it was kind of a, a, a dual thing for me there where one is informing the other and the other is informing back kind of thing.
0: Okay, so I'm really interested in this idea of what should... Christian community look like uh, you know obviously that was a very personal thing for you because mm-hmm. it changed a ton yeah but but on the on the macro level on the slightly bigger level like what do you imagine the Christian community should be like i mean i sh- i i will say this is something that i've been been struggling with maybe not necessarily just in the you know we should all be positive all the time but i'm starting to think that maybe as a community we ought to be much more radical than we are and have been. So, you know, maybe you horribly disagree with me on that, but <laughs> I, 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 I'm i curious to hear what you think that what the community should look like.
1: Yeah, so um, I think Christian community has to be motivated by love. Um, and I think that that's just the bottom line and anything that's outside of that or brings that into question is it should be questioned. Um, and so um, that's really where I come where I was led to is that it needs to be in love and it needs to be in care for each other. And it needs to be in kind of doing life together. And so, um, I think that in sometimes in churches it can almost get to feel businesslike. There's almost like a push for for growth and for for these kinds of things that that really just feels um, to me sometimes oppressive. Because I, I'm I'm a big now I I'm actually a staff pastor at a large church, um, and and um, I absolutely love it. And I and I love it because we're we're really working to do some of these. Um, uh, to promote community and, and do some of those things. We do a lot of things to try to make the church feel smaller. Um, and uh, I could <laughs> W- that's funny because our church story. is small and
0: we do a lot of things to make us feel larger.
1: So Yeah, and, and well, I think that there's just a lot of pressure for a church to like have constant growth and to have, you know, like, and if you're not growing in numbers, then then maybe your success is in question. And I think, and I just feel at my very core that if, if you're a pastor and you, and you start with 40 people and you marry and bury and do life together and you end with 40 people, that that's an honorable way to spend your life. If you're helping people walk closer to Christ and encouraging them in their own personal missions and if and if they're making strides in their own personal mission. And so but I think that that goes against a lot of what we're seeing in the evangelical church. And so um, so for me, that I've got this kind of a, kind of a push pull um, and and um, just kind of defining what all that looks like for me.
0: Yeah, so what do you see the evangelical church doing cuz I, I again I think we probably I don't want to be negative and you know we we I'm sure we yeah. could pick all sorts of ways that you know <laughs> our side is is letting us down but
1: I would say that what I think is probably the most dangerous thing and it is in a lot of ways led by this need for constant growth is prosperity gospel. It just it it just kills me every time I hear it and um and and so um but it's so invasive and it colors so much of what we've done and we've exported so much of it overseas and it's, and it really just is, I'm really kind of burdened about that, I guess. Yeah. is,
0: is I, I will say we have just recently started doing um, as a family, you know, morning and evening prayers from um, sort of common prayer traditions. Mm-hmm. And so much of it is so far from the prosperity gospel it, like they're not you wouldn't recognize them as the same faith because you know it says things yep. like if you have two coats and you know your brother doesn't have any you should go and get on your knees and beg him for se- stealing that coat from him because he needed it and you had it to give yeah and that's that's so far from the yep. you know if you serve you'll get uh Mm -hmm. type of type of model i'm i'm shocked and when you talk about doing life together i start reimagining what that means because like sometimes that means all like you hang out and you get to know each other and you know you do stuff together but on the other hand sometimes it means like hey i you know i lost my job and my house got foreclosed on and i step in and say i have extra it would be a sin for me not to give it to you and again yeah that that might be really radical in in the world today that says sort of look out for yourself first.
1: Yeah. One thing, our church is, our church is uh, quite large and there was, it's been a practice when other churches are struggling that um, maybe the, um, the church like gets sold and people get kind of dispersed and, 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 and to reallocate um, funds so that, so that we can start new works and things like that. But that really has always sat, Poorly with me, I think, because my dad had a small church, and I ministered in a small church for so long. And it just was this past year where there was a church that was close to the church where we're at, or, or our church, and we, um, and we, we've been talking about planting churches because we don't want to be this huge nuclear reactor, you know. We think we should spread it out a little bit, um, and so, but we've been talking about planting, planting churches. But what we ended up doing is, we had. Um, our offerings had swelled during the year. So we were sitting with, um, it's not a secret. We were sitting with an extra $300,000 that we had not planned on having. Um, and this church the, they came to us and they're like, we're struggling. Um, we're not going, can you, can you help us out? Um, and they talked to us about maybe adopting them and helping them out. And the mortgages that we keeping them under was $300,000. Oh, Wow. So we went in, we paid off their mortgage, we kept their family intact and now we're and now they're instead of having instead of creating a campus church, we've adopted a family and we have created a campus church but out of an existing church and we have no plans on closing them, we're keeping them open and they're running beautifully now. And so um, and, and so sometimes it, it comes in ways that we don't really anticipate it. Um, but I think that there's all kinds of opportunities. And so I'm, I'm super happy because my job as a pastor is I was going to be the, the one that was in charge of church planting, but actually I'm in charge of church rescuing right now. And so oh, that's, that's so the, cool. And I'm just so thrilled to be on like on the edge of that, where I'm actually saying, you know what? No, we don't define success by growth. That's not how we define success. We've defined success by family and and by and by um, people finding Christ and by people walking closer to God and by, um, and by people being active in their own ministries. And so when we can come in to, to have the opportunity to do that and to be on on the edge of, of maybe thinking uh, rethinking how we handle struggling churches is just such a I'm honored to be able to do that.
0: You know, are there any yeah. any strings attached? Because I, mean, I can just imagine how so many would do it. They are like, "Well, they're not, they're not like us," or you know, "Well, we'll help them out." But you know, and there's always a yeah. qualifier. So, but yeah. I don't think that's the right way to do it. But on the other hand, when you're a church that might have a spare three hundred thousand dollars, you have a lot of people that that you have are sort well, of responsible to. So,
1: yeah. So we we um. We had a. it was really funny because for a long time we were like, God doesn't give you an extra three hundred thousand dollars unless God wants you to do something with it. <laughs> right. I mean, it's just straight up that doesn't happen. And so we were we were like starting to get like, whoo, what what are we what are we doing? What's happening? And then this this came up now. um, I my denomination is Assemblies of God. And so this was another Assemblies of God church. And so we're coming in there and what we're basically doing is we're just bringing them under our umbrella and we're, we're supplying them with um. We, we went in and for the last few months, we've gotten to know them, what they need and, and what they're going to want. And a pastor will supply them with a pastor and we'll just run it under our umbrella. So a pastor will get to come in, but they're not going to have to have those financial concerns because we'll keep all of the financial stuff um, with the with well the, the mothership, basically. And so we'll we'll take care of all of that, but we'll let them still run as as a church underneath um, their own pastor. So it's not like we, we don't want to do like the video church or something. I mean, not throwing rocks at people who do the video church, but we, we want to have a pastor there. Sure. And so and so that's kind of how that all will work. So we still maintain we still will maintain some control over there, but it's keeping that family intact.
0: I would love to also see you know a Catholic church help out of Baptist Church. Um, maybe yeah. that's a bridge too far. It's so interesting how I think that we all ought to work together and, and to try to maybe bring it back to some of the storytelling, I think that your your original article that that got me thinking about bringing you in here,
1: well, and so so maybe that's my same, maybe it's my same resistance in, in numbers, in churches defining success. I think sales and books, um, I don't know if that necessarily, I mean, I, I definitely want to um, sell books, but I don't think that that necessarily defines success. I think it's it has to be individuals and who you touch.
0: Well, and I actually have maybe a slightly different opinion, but I think it's, it's related and nuanced, and that is... I really like the idea of sales and, and success as a way to tell, am I really resonating with, with the audience and the people that this is meant for? Are they picking it up and reading it? Um, but on the other hand, uh, someone uh, when I was doing some of the, the beginning marketing consulting uh, last year, uh, he said, um, a measure of success is when you send out a newsletter, do people respond thoughtfully? You know, mm-hmm. so are you creating some sort of engagement? So maybe you didn't sell, you know, a hundred thousand books, but maybe you sold a few, but everybody who touches it has a has a particular reaction, so
1: Well, and it's my whole marketing, my marketing efforts are, I mean, I did uh, at first and I did uh, at first, I was, you know, doing a lot of like the social media marketing and and trying to keep up with that. And, and I definitely want to blog more than I do. I need to do that. Um, But uh, one of the things is, is because my life shifted from non-ministry and I was, I was teaching and, and basically just teaching college. So I was teaching college And then I went to seminary and then I moved into ministry because my um, my own life has changed so much. My audience has changed. And it's really funny because now that I'm am in the position of being a pastor in a larger church I'm kind of experiencing like as people find out that I'm a writer too so writer isn't my definition there my definition is pastor but now they're finding out that I'm a writer. so I'm building a whole entirely different audience um, and and with things that um, and people are pulling out things from my books that the last time that people read them like when Soul Painter first came out people were reading things and pulling things out that people are now pulling out differently um because it's a different audience my audience has actually shifted between the first soul painter and the third soul painter, or the, and then souls cry at the, the, the last one. And it's been really kind of an interesting thing. And now my audience has shifted a little bit more. And, and so it's kind of like a revitalization and a little bit of a, and and a, just a change because people are coming back to me and they're like, oh, I read this book and I really liked this. And that's something that I didn't hear from the other readers. And so it's, it's interesting how that has worked.
0: Yeah, I mean this may be a conversation for a marketing consult sometime, but everything that our marketing plan is about is about serving the audience, but really finding out what makes them what makes you tick first. Like why do I do what I do? Why do I care about telling those stories? You might even ask like why is this story the one that comes out of that scene that you set at the beginning like yeah. and and then say, "Okay, who else is totally, you know, has their trigger tripped by that?"
1: Mm-hmm. You
0: know who else yeah. is resonant with that, with that set of thoughts, and and then go and find a way to serve that audience. I mean, when you mention, um, you know, you need to blog more. I think that blogging more is fine, but also like the quality matters, right? Like mm-hmm. this one comes back around to me. It seems like every every little while, right? So, <laughs> you know, this what uh, two and a half years old. I. Yeah. Uh, Two thousand
1: seventeen. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so you know, I feel like it comes around back around every couple of months and I go, Oh yeah, that's right. Like this is this is why we do it and you know, put to to put the why back in into place. So boy, there should have been a question there somewhere, but um (laughs) But yeah, that just the idea of identity and and knowing who you serve and why. And I think maybe for you going through the process of becoming a pastor may have really refined your identity a bit and what you think is important, you know?
1: Well, and and it has, and even like, um, there's things that I had to work through, like, um, just in, in kind of discerning my call and things. And, and one of the themes that's running through the book that I'm working, that I'm working on right now is, um, is fear and being paralyzed by fear. And, um, And I think that, uh, and I think that a lot of what I have been through recently is finding its way into, into that book and, and um, how much control we allow fear to have over our lives um, is really kind of the things that are running through my head right now.
0: Oh, really? That's, that's super interesting. I, I mean, I think if you had to say, how much does fear run your life? I would say depending on the day, like 80%, like how many things would you do if you weren't absolutely terrified of all the consequences?
1: It's even, it even, and and it chases us even into like our senior years. If you look at even some of the challenges that we have in the church world, where, um, where maybe like, the music's too loud or you know what I mean? Just yeah. sometimes we get those little things. It it all boils down to fear. It's fear of being replaced. It's fear of that your point of view isn't important anymore. Everything that we have, pretty much all of our conflicts, they, they, the more I've been thinking about it, the more I've been writing through of it. Through it, is the more I'm realizing that pretty much everything that we have boils down to fear.
0: Someone asked not too long ago, said, what's the thing that you fear most? I was like, well, that's... An interesting question and lots of people are like oh fear of being judged a fear of this and i thought i think for me it's fear of uh like causing causing harm or not being misunderstood but sort of the opposite of that like being being misunderstood but not because i care about being understood but because i want them to know that i actually care about them yeah, you know, yeah but, so yeah
1: i i have an i have an example of that i was one time i was at walmart And there was a, um, there was a woman who had, um, she had special needs, um, and it was, it was quite obvious that she had special needs, um, cognitive delays. And then she had a helper with her as well. The helper was off like sitting on a bench and then the the cashier was trying to get this person to sign up for their new, like, like, uh, like credit card and club thing and stuff like that. And I Facebooked something and I Facebooked and what I said perhaps wasn't as clear as it should have been, but it was something about, you know, why is this person doing to this, to this person and somebody who actually um, dealt with disability got on and she was super angry. And she's like, doesn't that person with the disability have the right to have that? and what i really meant what i was really going at it was no that person has the right to have uh, yes they do have the right to have that but they have the right sure. to also have um competent help you know what i mean and and that's what this and person, not be
0: berated by a person doing a sales and, pitch
1: yes and that's where and that's where i was going but this other person didn't know me very well and she was highly offended and like very angry and it just it just cut me to my core because i've worked with the disabled community like a lot of my life and for somebody to think that i would actually be discriminating against that community would just it just killed me um and i i think ever since then i've been very hesitant to like go on like facebook or any public thing with any kind of a um an opinion one way or the other, because I just know how easily it can be misunderstood. And that really, it the whole thing that hurt most was that somebody would think that about me, right. that, you know what I mean? And, and that was a really, that was an eye opening thing for me. It's so hard to control that in social media and in any kind of conversations where you're not like face to face.
0: Yeah. And I think and it's means- not that it hurt you necessarily, because you know that you're not like that, but it caused harm to that other person in some ways to think.
1: Yeah, yep, yep. It, it hurt me to know that I hurt somebody else, right. I guess is what was what I'm saying. And, and, and so it was just, it was really, um, it was eye-opening for me uh, how hard it is sometimes to have those conversations. Um, and then sometimes now I'll avoid conversations that I think I should have because that fear comes back that I might hurt somebody. And so always trying to, um, to, to navigate that, um, is, is life is so nuanced, but fiction helps us work through it. I like it. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Well, and you know, if we, this is going to go back to crapping on the true stories for a second, but if we wait for the perfect true story to come along, you know, you, you could throw something like that into a work of fiction and then weave all those elements through it. Yep. And that story as it is, is a short film at best, right? It's a short story. It's a you know, if you were going to fictionalize it, like it wouldn't be served by doing that. It would, you know, it served here to have a quick conversation about it, but
1: like, yeah.
0: to, to let fiction explore that and what the implications of that are. And you have a bunch of players in there. You have the disabled yeah. person, you have the cashier, you have you observing, you have the helper, you have the other person yeah. who was just taking your words from it. Like, how do all of those people live and, you know, what's their experience? like? But this goes back to the other thing that you've talked about. And having gone to seminary, I guess you would have an opinion on this idea of we need to progress, right? Let, let's read a nonfiction book and, you know, fix some problems. Here, here's a better way to communicate. I'm, I'm sure somewhere out there there's, there's a book that would have said, well, you shouldn't have said it like that. You should say it like this.
1: <laughs> um, uh, I think that... Um... You know what, going to seminary, really. So when I first started going to seminary, I, I started out um, just going for a, a master's in theology. Um, but I changed it because for an academic reason, I wanted to study the languages. So I changed it to an MDiv. But MDiv happened to have, um, that's a master's of divinity, that happened to have the um, the um, pastoral care and the ministry um, track in it. And that's really what got me into thinking more ministry wise. But part of that pastoral care is um, understanding how people work. And, and there is a point to this. Um, when we, when we, um, we rely as humans, we are wired for story. And we rely on story. And story is what teaches us empathy. So now I'm going to go ahead and throw rocks at the nonfiction a little bit, because here's the thing. We've developed somehow in our churches, we've developed this idea that if we're doing self-help books and real life stories that we're somehow and it's and it's giving us things to work on, that that somehow trumps personal development but we know that empathy doesn't develop without, um, without story and without reading fiction. So what does that create in our churches? That creates a whole bunch of people who think they know the way, but maybe haven't developed empathy. Um, and that's a scary place to be. So if we're looking at real macro level, um, fiction is vital. Jesus taught in stories. Fiction is vital to the development of our Christianity and who we are as Christians and how we relate to others.
0: I think that the word empathy gets thrown around quite a bit, but I think it might be misunderstood. <laughs> I saw an article, and maybe I've shared this, but it is Christians ought to have more empathy and less sympathy, um, I think was the, the title. Uh, oh. and what do you think the importance of empathy is, and how is it that story develops that?
1: I see it as... Um... Empathy is when we can, when we share the experience with somebody. And I think that we're really called to do that. Sympathy is, sympathy keeps people at arm's distance. It keeps people, it's like, oh, I'm so sorry that that happened to you over there. Um, You know, and, but, but empathy Is it means, okay, I'm going to sit in this mud pit with you um, because I know you're super depressed and there's nothing that I can say about it, but I'm not going to let you be alone in this because Jesus wouldn't let you be alone in this.
0: Just let me add just a little bit there because I think that sometimes we can have false empathy or that is sort of sympathy in a way when people say, Mm -hmm. oh, sweetie, I know how you're feeling. I went through something similar. You know, this is the whole. Uh, you know, your spouse might have just died and they go, oh, I, I lost my dog last winter. And <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> Heaven help us. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah.
0: I actually had someone say, does that really happen? I was like, uh-huh. I wish oh, I wish yeah. it didn't, but oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you think you're being empathetic by saying, oh, I know what that's like. Well, what you said about I'm going to sit in the mud because I know I can't console you. Part of it is I don't know what that's like, right? Like, I don't yeah. know. What you're going through, I've never lost a spouse, maybe you, a mother or something like that, like an experience I've never had, but I can share that with you somehow. So how fiction might get at that, and maybe I'll let you pick this up, is you're in someone's head, you get to experience yeah. it from there. So,
1: so fiction, when we read fiction, and whether it's whether it's through film or it's through um, books, um, but when we when we get into the story, if it's done well we get into the story is we adopt their point of view and we adopt their experiences for a while. So it broadens our ability to, um, be empathetic with other people because it it allows us to learn those kind of like, uh, stretch the empathy muscles. You know, it allows us to, um, open ourselves to, um, not having to change any outcome, but still experiencing it with the person, and I think that's where fiction really kind of dovetails with it.
0: Yeah. So that just made me think uh, another reason that I disconnect sometimes with with Christian fiction, and I think you know uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna have another moment of with Christian film is so rarely do you see things where you get to. Uh, see characters really vastly dissimilar from you. You know, if you're, mm-hmm. you know, an evangelical Christian, you go to an evangelical Christian movie. Your heroes are all going to be of that sort and variety. There might be, you know, an atheist, but he's either going to be the villain or he's going to be the guy who comes to redemption in the end and comes right yeah. around to your 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 point of view. But with the books that you write and a lot of the books that we publish, we we tend to to pick some really hard ones where they're not, they're not our normal everyday experience. And maybe this goes back to all the way back to the beginning of the conversation when you said you write the re- real true stories that we live. And I said, well, how's that possible when you, you know, write this yeah. w- weird historical, you know, supernatural, all this cool stuff. Like that's not our day to day.
1: But it is real life because it's all about being human. And and it strikes me as more real life than, um, okay, so I'll, you know, I'll be a little bit on the edge here where not everybody gets saved and married at the end of the book, you know? And so, um, this is, it's, but that's, that, that's true to life. You know, that doesn't happen in real life and, um, in fiction, whether or not it takes place in the 1800s or it takes place now, being human is still being human. That's why the stories that Jesus tells us resonate. Now, do we understand exactly Um, What it would have been like for the man to help the Samaritan, you know, for the for that whole thing. No, we don't understand all the cultural nuance, but we can study and we know enough of it to know that something extraordinary happened. And we know enough of it. That we can relate to our own neighbors and maybe our own neighbors in need, and that's where and that's where fiction has that power is because we even though we weren't there, even though we we can't every speck of dust we don't know where it was placed, we still know the truth of the story. And the truth of the story is that we have a responsibility even to people that we might not be inclined to have a responsibility towards. Um, and so, and so that's that's. Um, the truth still shines through story no matter what the setting is. And that's, that's what we can do with fiction. Um, we can and play. Sometimes I think the
0: it's improved by it. Right. I, I'm thinking about, I don't know if you've read any of April McGowan's books, particularly her, her newer ones, but you know, she has mentally ill characters, people dealing with going blind and, and um, you know, homelessness in, in Portland. Cause that's generally the area she's from. And mm-hmm. I think like, I have no relation personally to any of those things, right? Like, I mean, I think every family might have their own touch of mental illness or, you know, addictive behavior <laughs> here and there. but
1: well, we just but, got over the holidays, so there you go. <laughs>
0: but, like, you know, I don't personally know anyone who's homeless, but having read a book about it, I have a different kind of empathy with who they mm-hmm. are and how how they got there and, you know... Uh, you know, a lot of the evangelical church—they—they had this thought of, well, you know, they got there by their own thing, and I'll help them, but only so far. And you know, they have to do things to sort of earn my help. I'll give the first bit, but yeah. if they keep have falling into addictive behaviors, I'm not going to keep helping. I, I see that, that a lot. Like, wait, you're getting mad at the homeless addict, you know, drug addict, addicted guy because he acted like a homeless drug addict. I don't, I don't understand.
1: We we use, we lived in, so we live in some Prairie right now, but we lived in some Prairie for a long time. And then we decided to move to Milwaukee for a year. And we, it's, it was at that time, the fourth poorest zip code in the U S and we moved down there just to work. And we lived and worked in that zip code, um, right next to the mission where there was, we um, had a health clinic for homeless people and, and stuff like that. And so, um, and we'd serve meals and things like that. And, um, one day, it really brought, this really brought it home to me. So one day, um, I, I went to pick my kids up from school. That was one thing. I, I didn't have my kids go to school in that zip code. We I, I, I had them in, in a private school because, um, well, frankly, my kids would have been bait in that school because they had been homeschooled previously. So that would, they, they wouldn't have done well in, in that. They,
0: Not good for anyone in off. that situation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, but I went to, but they did, they did work and stuff like that in the mission with us. But I went to pick them up from school and I got home up to our fifth floor apartment, tiny apartment. Um, And my um, daughter says, oh, like an hour after we're home. Oh, I need some poster board for a project tomorrow. Hmm. And I just wanted to cry. I was like, oh my gosh. And so I packed everybody back up, went back down five flights of stairs, went back to the car, drove to the worst Walmart you've ever been in. They don't have it there. Drove to the next Walmart, another horrible Walmart, and they had it there. I came home. By the time I got home, it was eight o'clock at night. Everybody was hungry, falling apart. It was just a mess. And that's when it really occurred to me that um, if I had been the typical person living there, I would have been a single mom working more than one job with kids at home. And my choices would have been difficult from the beginning. So your kid comes home and tells you they need poster board. So all of a sudden you need to decide, am I leaving my children home alone? Or am I going to take them? Because then you have to pay for bus fare for everybody. And that's if you get everybody bundled up in the middle of winter, get them onto the bus and get them after the hours of hour of stops and stuff to the Walmart. And then you get everybody off the bus and realize there's no poster board there. So you have to go to the next Walmart and get everybody back. And it occurred to me how judgmental we are because I, in that situation, if I had been a single mom in that situation without a vehicle um, working more than one job, I don't know if I would be a good enough mom to have protected my kids from all the things that that you find in that in that um, socioeconomic um, with those limitations. And, well, I will and tell I, you,
0: I wouldn't have I wouldn't have gone after the poster board if I was a single well, <laughs> parent. In that case, I would look at it and go, "Nope, I got to decide which ball to drop." And today we're going to eat, and we're not going to get poster yep. board.
1: Yeah. But I mean, but that's but that's the decisions that are, I mean, day in and day right. out as a mother, you have these decisions. So if you don't get poster board, then your children start failing in school, right. you know? And so it's all these- And the whole thing starts of, over again. And it, it all starts over again. And that's when I really, um, that experience as silly and small as it was, that really opened my eyes to, oh my goodness, this is so hard. Poverty is so hard. And I honestly don't know, even with all of my training with my school, if I had this thing stacked against me that some of those people have stacked against them, I don't know if I'd be good enough to raise a healthy family. I, you know, yeah. and, and it just, it really drove it home, um, that experience did for me.
0: To try to bring back to books, do you ever get a chance to, yeah. to write about this? Does, does that experience ever make it in anywhere? I mean, even um, your... Your Dust Bowl story. I I get you and Susie Finkbeiner because you both have uh,
1: Dust Bowl (laughs) stories
0: with other publishers.
1: They released released like close to the same time, too. We're like it's like dueling Dust Bowl stories. Uh, (laughs) But but it did. That did inform that. Um, And I think one of the ways that that informed that was just um, how hard it is to survive in poverty. Um, And it's really easy for us to say, oh, well, we paid your rent last month, but we're not going to do it this month because, you know, you should have been able to, you know, catch up after that. Um, And 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 how how impossible that is and how the help even, you know, like, I mean, okay, so this will be my soapbox, even the getting assistance from the federal government um it's it always seems a little bit too little too late and it's just a trap and and if you get a raise at work then you lose twice as much in benefits and it's just it's just it's it's like it's it's it traps people and we have very in and sometimes we're guilty in the church of having very little respect for the power of that trap
0: yeah that's a soapbox of mine is the trap that it is and i've run small businesses and I've hired the sort of single mom, and in some ways they've they've begged me like don't don't give me a raise. And I'm like, what do you mean? She said I'm going to lose two hundred fifty dollars a month in food stamps yep. if you give me an yep. extra couple dollars a month. And I do the math yep. and I think, okay, what would it take for me to to fix that? Well, I fixed that, I can I can afford to pay extra for that. And then she says, yeah, but now I'm going to lose my medical benefits for my kids because yep. I should be able to afford those. And, and it just becomes this weird snowball there's, and i yeah
1: we we've owned businesses too and there's like a it's like a $30,000 jump that you have to like make between you know like the wage here and where you could actually efficiently get somebody out of poverty especially with um insurance and stuff like that the way it is it's just it's insane
0: Insurance is enough to keep you to keep you poor. I remember when we went from being sort of just out of college and we just started a family and we were paying a small stipend to the state of Maryland, but they Medicaid subsidized the kids, you know. Yep. Thank God for that. We didn't have to worry about it. But once we made just a little bit too much, you know, we went from paying seventy dollars a month or something for two kids to like six hundred. And yep. that was <laughs> it <was> just... <laughs> it's just
1: like, it's like a joke it's like, yeah. like, it's like <laughs> why is this happening
0: <laughs> yeah I want to be self-sufficient but but I wonder and this is this is really tangential but I wonder how much this idea of self-sufficiency is is a trap as a mindset and I think that might go back to the prosperity gospel and this idea that if i'm self-sufficient then I can help other people well at what point do you realize i'm not really self-sufficient
1: exactly. And that's where tithing comes in and where those disciplines, those Christian disciplines come in. Because if we realize if we tithe, it's because we realize that, um, God, it's all God's anyway, and we are just stewards of it. And so if God gives us more, we're, we are more responsible with that and we're stewards of the resources that we have. The things that I have, um, If I'm following Christian thought, and if I'm really being true to it, the things that I have, God gives me so I can minister to other people. It's not for my comfort.
0: Right. Um, And if it's not for that purpose, you should give it away or it'll be taken away. I think sometimes I feel like that. And again, I think that's a super radical idea. I, I think about that sometimes, like right now I'm sitting in a whole sort of second house that us in the bank own but we use it for yeah. office we have all the books here this is where we run you know production stuff and I th- sometimes i think should i just sell it or should i you know give it away and let it you know i, I guess i can't give it away because i owe, <laughs> owe the bank on it but-, <laughs> but on the other hand like sometimes god gives us things right he says you know yeah. yes could you get away with with more from where you're sitting could you do more with less it looks like it to you but trust me you you're gonna need you're gonna need this and well
1: we're not, we're not all called to poverty we're called to be stewards and so you are ministering with that because you are running a Christian publishing house that you could not efficiently run without being a steward of that asset so the people who um, tied so faithfully to the church that we had that three hundred thousand um, dollar just money that we didn't expect to have. They saved a church. They saved a church, you know? And so, um, it's, it's, they're, they're being stewards of what God had given them. And so, um, I think that we can slip into a poverty mindset, um, that we should just give everything away. And I, I think it's different. Some, some people, God calls them to a life of poverty. Um, but I think that a lot of people, God just calls us to be stewards and to just keep in mind that none of this is ours, that it's all God's, and, and that
0: we could we be called to, to give it, it, it away at any moment, right? We I mean, could
1: be, and we need to be willing to do that. But how can we best, um, how can we best be stewards of God's asset?
0: Yeah, because I mean, if your church hadn't been willing to just say, "Here it is," I'll write the check. You know, that mm-hmm. church would have fallen apart. Who knows what would have happened to the families inside of it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a whole he- help with the- heaping help. Uh, yeah, there's a whole progression of things that could have gone wrong there. Um, but it all actually started with a bunch of individual folks in your church yep. stepping up and either giving faithfully or giving sacrificially. Or, you know, mm-hmm. there's probably 300,000 stories there about how... Yep how the money had to come, where it had to come from. And maybe even more than that, because how did they have it? How did they have enough of a prosperity to be able to give extra? So the idea of being willing to answer a call and, and do things is, is really important. But I think that all comes back to empathy, right? Like, do you yeah. do that just because it's it's best practices? I mean, you know, people say, oh, well, the Bible calls for us to tithe 10%. If you're doing that mechanically... I wonder sometimes if it works. (laughs) I mean,
1: well, um, God wants us to be cheerful givers. But that's one thing that I've actually been working through in this last year is is the idea that God uses our best and God uses our worst, too, Um, that it's all for use in the kingdom. And so because if God didn't use our worst, if God didn't use us where we failed, then um, then we would uh, then none of us would ever be used. because we all fail. And so, um, so what great fodder for
0: fiction too. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yes. So were all of those people cheerful givers or were they doing it out of duty or were they doing it because they thought if I did do this, then God will give me more, you know, kind of that prosperity gospel. What, what part of that were they at? Um, I don't know, but God used it to, for the kingdom. Yeah,
0: someone once said about, you know, like a piece of jewelry, it's not the jewelry's fault, right? Whatever story went along with it, (laughs) it's not the money's fault why someone gave it. God can use, you know, that hard heart. Yep. And, you know, they might have given grudgingly, they might have given with the wrong motives, who cares? Mm -hmm. Because God went, I can redeem that, watch, it's real easy. Yep,
1: yep. Yep.
0: And what's funny is what he can do easily with money, he can do with all sorts of other things he can do with our bad behavior. And sometimes I think that as Christians and in, in Christian fiction and in storytelling, we avoid really showing our true depraved selves, like where we really fail, like, I'll show you a little bit of how I fail, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna cop to that secret, like, whatever it is, but if you can really show that, if you can take your story or, and maybe a piece of someone else's story that maybe you know in confidence, because we all have friends that confide things in us, and, and go, there's a lesson in there, I can change all of the details, but let me use that that for good. Thanks so much for, for coming on. Thank you for joining us today for our talk with Kara Licht. For more information about Kara, please check out the show notes for links to her website, blog, social media, and books. And if you check out our website, whitefire.tv unexpressed, there we'd ask you to share a story about how a novel or other work of fiction helped you understand other people, people potentially very different from you in a better way. How did you change because of that experience? This podcast is sponsored by Read at Whitefire. There you can read the first two chapters of any Whitefire Publishing Group company's books. And if you like what you read, they're available for purchase in print format, as well as electronic formats for all the most popular e-readers. Some books even have signed copies available. And if you're a listener of this podcast, there's a chance you're a good candidate for Platy People, our membership program for unique readers. For just $5 a month or $50 a year, Platy People members get to choose two free books per month, a free novella, 15% off all purchases, including gift certificates, and free shipping to U.S. addresses. Why choose ordinary when you can read extraordinary? Unexpressed is part of the Whitefire Podcast Network. Please visit whitefire.tv podcast find other shows we know you're going to love.